practical adjective of or concerned with the actual doing or use of something rather than with theory and ideas. This is where we begin, where the rubber meets the road. When life gets heavy and you feel like a burden, what do you do? When you wake up and find chaos around you, who are you? I share my thoughts and reflections week to week as I distill conversations with clients, share real life stories, and talk through concepts and ideas in real time. This podcast focuses on turning inwards, outwards, and upwards, where introspection is the norm and we step towards becoming the people we admire. May curiosity lead our way. As I sit here with my eyes closed in my dark room, I wonder, what do I want to say? This is the first episode of a new podcast and... I want to set the tone. What might that tone be? And as I wonder what I'd like to say, I come to the realization that it feels less about the words and more about where they're coming from. And probably more important still, who's listening to them? It's part of the fun about words is As they pass our lips, they never mean the same thing to whoever hears them. And so that's, that's part of the game, right? What do we, what do we intend to say is very different than what do they, what do they hear? What do they think we said? And that's part of the the limitation of words. You know, these words that we use are a comical tool that we can fumble around with trying to communicate our inner reality to the people around us. Well, on the back end of that, so often wondering, why don't we feel connected? Why, why is it so seemingly difficult to connect? And that's part of the the magic I feel in togetherness. For me, that's, I think, why I am largely a quality time person. I am a, if you are in front of me, you exist person because I mean to zoom all the way out to a global aspect it doesn't it doesn't exist it's not real right it's not the real world because as far as I'm concerned the real world is what's in front of me and that's not to say other people's worlds are not important they absolutely are but and however Energy is a finite resource. And so many people seem to just toss it away. And then wonder why they're always tired. Wonder why they struggle to feel fulfilled. 
We struggle to feel bright, vibrant, alive, this spark, you know. Well, my mind goes to where are you putting your energy, right? Energy allocation. Where does it go? We don't have the same amount day to day, which is one thing, another level of sort of a dissociation between reality and what we'd like. It's nice to think that, oh, because I had all this energy today or one day in my past, I'll have that same amount today or tomorrow and I'll do all these same things and it'll be great. Maybe, maybe that is the case. Or maybe <laughs> that is not the case. <laughs> right? and more often than not, that, oh, this is interesting. The expectation management comes into play. The expectations of ourselves are different than what we are able to fulfill. And so there's a, there's a dissonance there. There's a disconnect from what we would like reality to be and what reality is right now. And I feel it's important to encapsulate right now because right now is always changing. Now is never anywhere but here, right? And that's, that's part of the game. Expectations. Expectations of ourselves. Expectations of others with regards to us. And then others' expectations of themselves and others' expectations of us. <laughs> and then the interplay of words. Right? It's, uh, I want you to do this. Well, first of all, you need to be able to identify a thing. Because oftentimes, that's hard enough by itself. Second of all, you have to have some degree of confidence that that thing that you're asking for is actually what you need or what you think you need. Because more often than not, there's a bit of a wishy-wash there, right? We don't really know what it is we want. We just go on an educated guess. We think about our past. We think about, hmm, this seems right. Or worse, we just use our emotions and let them guide us to, this seems like what I want or need. I'll tell them that. And then sure enough, when they provide that or bring that, that's not actually what you wanted or needed. And so does the fault lie on them or does the fault lie on you? The fault lie on the words, which, you know, there's a whole bunch of those just floating around. It's irony in that I'm just talking a bunch of them right now is not lost on me. But there on goes the game, right? It's the tennis between who is up and do we expect the ball to return? We can set ourselves up for a pretty much infinite amount of stress in uh, in playing that, in expecting the ball to come back, trying to predict where it is. In contrast, circling back to curiosity, I wonder where the ball is going to be coming from and what it's going to be coming with or in the form of. Right? We don't really know. Because maybe the words that we said or the things that we did was interpreted great. That went 12 out of 10, better than expected. 
maybe it went impartially. You know, that could have been better, could have been worse. I don't know. On goes the game. Or maybe it went fucking terribly. That happens, right? And then we're surprised. Because for some reason, we have a default of expecting that it will go well. And then if it doesn't, we're caught off guard. Oh, man, that went bad. Which circles into expectations. Surprise, surprise. If we lead that position of curiosity, you're much less prone to to be upset, right? It's like, I have no idea what's coming. What is happening next? And that's largely... I'm fortunate to have a lot of reference points in my life to draw from for that exact thing. There has been so many days, weeks of, man, didn't see that coming. (laughs) You know, that shit's wild. That was wild. What comes to mind, we'll get into these stories later. This is an idea from earlier, but right now we're here. After my heart surgery in 2018, fast forward a month, I had pneumonia. And uh, breathing was not not the easiest thing to do. And so one night, I found myself, after I sat in the dark in shock for a couple of hours before bed, as I did every day at that time, I was walking myself to bed. And as I pushed my walker around the bottom of my bed to go around to my CPAP machine, I fell on the floor. And fortunately, I had my had a little square pillow. So after open heart surgery, when your sternum is split, they give you a pillow to squeeze when you cough. Because initially, you need a little bit of support in your chest uh, to sort of decrease the amount of risk involved in coughing and things, sneezing, uh, and causing damage to your sternum. So... Anyway, I'm walking around the base of my bed, my walker and this pillow, and I fall on the floor and I get into this coughing fit. And at that time, you know, fortunately, I was feeling better other than the, what would turn out to be pneumonia, but uh, I was fresh off of a 50 pound drop of body weight over the previous 30 days. And, uh, I found myself laying on the floor, hugging this pillow, gasping for air. And every time I tried to take a breath in, I would cough, which seemed like twice as hard. So every gasp of air I got in pushed a hundred times it out. So you can imagine, I wasn't, wasn't getting a, a real good break to get into my bed. So I just laid there. Laid on the floor, I got into a bit of the fetal position with my pillow, and as I coughed and uh, tried to breathe, I started to see stars. And what would be my field of vision became quite narrow. I had the blackening. In comes the darkness. There is no oxygen in your system, and we are shutting down. And I found myself, I started to laugh. You know, Mike, this is fucking wild. Here I am, laying on the floor. I can't breathe. I can't get up. I don't have my cell phone. There's nobody around. I'm all by myself. 
I can't breathe. <laughs> I can't get up. And then I puked. I throw up because I try to bring in air. No air is coming in, but vomit definitely went out. So now we had a small pile of vomit on the ground. And I continue to just lay in this fetal position for probably, I don't know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a while. And I started to laugh, right? It's this in between gasping and gagging and stars. I didn't, couldn't really see anything. I found it quite comical that this is real life. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. But the fun of it is, I didn't not see it coming either. You know, this, I guess that's part of my uniqueness is this, all of this scenario seemed pretty much on par. Like, yeah, I mean, this makes sense for my life and my life experience. And on this path that I've been on for, at that time, 32 years, this seems about right. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, I find that that's fun. It's a different It's a different degree of sensation in the body. You know, there's a lot of um, at that time I still had a stage four pressure ulcer on my tailbone. And so I every day I, I couldn't lay on my back in bed. I propped myself up on a pillow and I would sleep for you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes and then I would Shift my body weight, put the pillow on the other side and sleep for another 20 or 30 minutes. And that was, you know, it was just every day. That was just what I did. And then in the morning I would sort of roll out of bed and I'd text my dad, call my dad. He'd come down and he'd help my, help me get my walker down to the main street and we'd go for a walk. It didn't matter. Didn't matter about anything every day, all the time. That was, that was the deal to go. I wasn't going to talk about this today, but we'll share this story too. When I think about difficulties in life, when I hear people say I can't, or, you know, that's not possible. I have a lot of different points of reference in my memory that sort of contradict what's generally accepted as possible. And so I find it quite interesting, the stories that many people say and share to themselves in the world. Uh, what am I talking about? The, the story. So after my heart surgery, 2018, May 25th, I go in for heart surgery. They didn't really know what it is they were going to do. They couldn't get imaging of my heart because I had more blood pumping backwards than I did in the forwards, I guess, whatever the opposite of blood pumping backwards to your heart is. Didn't have enough of that. So they couldn't see, right? Generally, they put in contrast through IVs and you go into whether it's a CAT scan or an MRI or I had a, what do you call that, a transesophical echocardiogram. And it was not a ton of fun, but through all of that imaging, they couldn't see because 
the dye wasn't pumping through where they wanted it to because, well, guess what? My heart wasn't really working. So anyway, I go in for this heart surgery and, uh, well, there's some theoretical complications ahead of time. So we're going to rewind even more back to 1995. I would imagine most of the people listening to this were alive in 1995. Uh, I wish I remember the date offhand, to be honest, but I don't. We'll call it summer 1995. I'm going to bring you back. What were you doing in July, August 1995? Where were you? What was that like? How old were you? Did you have a pet, maybe? What was its name? (sighs) Childhood. Where was I? Well, I was in Sick Kids Hospital. So, what would turn out to be whooping cough landed me in Sick Kids Hospital, and that ended up being a five-week stay. During that stay, I was diagnosed with superior vena cava syndrome. So essentially, severe vena cava is right near your heart, and it is the hmm, the return point for upper body circulation to reoxygenate and recirculate. And as lo and behold, mine was scarred shut. And so, what do we do about this? People with superior vena cava occlusion complete superior cava vena cava occlusion. Oftentimes they die. Brain hemorrhaging, you have strokes, you have blood goes up to your head. Can't get back down. Things go pop. She's game over. So here I am, nine years old. This diagnosis, I'm going to put in a stunt, or a stent, sorry. And didn't work. So fast forward to the main part of the story here, my heart surgery. For the following 20 or so years, my body adapted. I grew veins in my chest, venous collaterals. And these venous collaterals, they handled the blood. They made sure that my brain didn't go pop. So that's nice being alive, you know, key part of living, I suppose. (laughs) But, uh, in having all these veins in my chest (laughs) do, it doesn't take a large stretch of the imagination to imagine that now going in for open heart surgery, these veins could pose an issue, right? First of all, uh, severe risk of bleeding. And maybe more importantly, upon destroying these veins to access my chest cavity to assess the condition of my heart, that would then destroy the way for blood to get down from my brain. And as you can imagine, that's probably not a good thing. So in for heart surgery, I go. Sure enough, they stopped the bleeding. It all went well-ish. And uh, shit was crazy. Shit was crazy. I was in the hospital for two weeks. And uh, we're going back to the walking part of the story, right? So the first couple of days, I don't remember. I know I was awake because there's pictures of them or pictures of me up and eating jello and things. Uh, yeah, I wasn't really there. I was there, but not there. I went in on a Friday. 
Saturday afternoon, I was extubated. I believe by Saturday night or Sunday morning, I was up on a bed, sitting in a chair. Fast forward to Monday night. I woke up at 1.15 in the morning. And I remember that because up until that point, I couldn't tell time. I had a clock at the foot of my bed on the wall. And I looked at it. I wasn't really sleeping very much, so I spent a lot of this time awake and sort of dozing in and out. But I looked at this clock and I didn't know what it meant. I couldn't tell time. You know, I could see the hands. I could see the numbers. Couldn't put it together. So the irony in that is actually pretty fun. I have been late for pretty much everything my entire life. And even at that point, laying in my bed, looking at the clock, I remember thinking, well, this is fun. The guy who's always late can't tell time. (laughs) And so I thought, well, maybe I just won't be able to tell time anymore. Maybe I have some sort of brain damage or maybe it's the drugs or who knows what it is. But whatever it is, I, I don't know what the fuck that circle thing says. And then one morning I woke up. 1.15, I could tell time. I thought, well, that's great. I don't have brain damage. You know, imagine. Time's all right. Imagine I'll be late for things the rest of my life still. But that's not the point of the story. Point is, morning comes around. We get lab work drawn at 6. I get the surgical resident, 7.30. He says to me, today, as you get on a bed, you walk to the end of the hallway and back five times. Do you understand? Yes. Great. Physio comes in later on. We do the walking. It is very difficult. Don't get me wrong. I have this walker. I walk maybe five, ten steps at a time. I lose my breath and sit down on the walker and we make our way back and forth. The next day, my INR was 10. So I got my morning labs at 6. Surgical resident comes around at 7.30. Today we do the walking. Yes, sir. Results come back roughly 8.39. Your INR is too high. When the rounds came around, around 9 o'clock, doctors say to me, if you get out of bed today, the pressure of your body weight on your feet may burst the blood vessels in your feet, causing internal bleeding severe enough that it may kill you. So today you don't, you don't go out or get out of bed. Yes, sir. The next day, surgical resident comes around. My breathing was significantly worse. My lungs, so in surgery, my right lung completely collapsed. And, well, I went in at 190 pounds and I came out about 245 pounds. So I had a significant amount of compression on my heart and lungs in the form of edema and fluid in my upper body. And so... As you can imagine, breathing with part of one lung with literally a 45, 50-pound water bag sitting on top of your lung, breathing took some, some doing. And in comes the surgical resident. My lungs were significantly worse. Laying in bed at that point uh, wasn't an option, as it turned out, and that would have killed me. And so when he came in that morning, he listened to my lungs and immediately he said, how many times did you get up to walk yesterday? 
I said, zero. He said, why not? I said, well, my INR was 10, 10.0 yesterday. And when the surgical team came around after you did, they told me I can't get up because it might, well, I might bleed out my feet into my legs and it'll kill me. So you can't get up today. And immediately he stormed out, went down the hallway to the nurse's station and caused quite a ruckus down there. Eventually he finds his way back to me. He says, if you do not breathe with intention, you will never breathe on your own again. Today, no matter what, you walk to the end of the hall and back five times. And every hour on the hour that you are awake, you take 10 deep breaths and cough 10 times as hard as you can. Do you understand? Yes, sir. And that's exactly what I did. Because at that time, as you can imagine, I was very, very much aware of the consequences of not listening to this man. Because all it took was literally less than 24 hours to go from significant improvement in my ability to breathe and move and walk to not even significant, like an almost detrimental to the point of death (laughs) degree of worse in one day. And so every day, that's what I did. I got up. It wasn't easy. It was not comfortable. Uh, You know, as you can imagine, this was, this was a difficult thing to do. And at the same time, there wasn't a choice. And in my view, there really never is or has been in my, in my medical past, there has never been a choice and there's no decision to be made, which seems to be part of my uniqueness in itself. One of my earliest messagings in my being, and I don't, I don't think that ever actually said these words to me, but I do know that it came from him. It's this loud, just thundering message echoing in every cell in my body. You can take whatever it takes because that's what it takes. And that's not how most people seem to see the world. And that's also, I believe, why why it's never really felt that hard for me. Listening to my stories and some of my life experiences, I have had a lot of people over the years. They're like, that's unbelievable. You know, I, I don't know how you did it. I, could, I just, I would have laid around. I would have laid in bed. You know, I couldn't do it. And I never really could understand that perspective. And I I mean, I really, I still can't understand it because in my world, it's not real. It doesn't exist, right? That's not, it's not an option. Never has been. It never will be. And that's just how it is, you know? And so when I am faced with this information from this doctor who says, if you don't breathe with intention, you will never breathe on your own again. 
It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter what it feels like. Right? There's no, that's not part of the equation. And I'm sure there's many layers of psychology there and this whole, you know, what you feel doesn't matter. But I mean, in one or many levels, it doesn't matter. Because if you want to stay alive, which turns out I do, some things are just the reality. And so, yeah, you do have to just fucking suck it up and go. So when I fast forward like a month and a half to this morning in my apartment in my (laughs) pneumonia state, collapsed on the floor, laughing to myself, thinking this is fucking wild. It's wild. I didn't see this coming. It's from a place of pure wonder. This is what it's like to be alive. I get to experience these intensities in my body that most people, most people have no, don't even have a frame of reference to even begin to understand what the fuck I'm talking about, let alone experience it. I have goosebumps because it's just very energizing. Those are the points in my life that I have felt most alive. There is no escaping it. You cannot get away. You are in it. You are there. It is very fucking real. It's as real as anything is. And so to go back to this global lens of events, they don't fucking exist. It isn't fucking real. It's not part of my life. Unless it's right in front of me. And I know for me how I best utilize my energy is to feed into the people that I see in my day to day to the fullest capacity that I can. Because that is how I believe I am most able to affect a positive change in the world around me and in therefore the world around them and the world around them. When we step into the best versions of ourselves continuously every day along that path, we effectively change the world. And I, it's not theoretical to my eyes. It's very real very real we have the power to change the world through conversations and I know that because how many times I'm going to take you with me again have you had a conversation that you don't even register as being important you know one year two year five years goes by you run into this person again and they say to you you know what that thing you said to me Five years ago, changed my life. And you think to yourself, I mean, that sounds like something I would say. So, that seems right. But I have no fucking idea. No recollection whatsoever of that happening. But that person does. That person took the words that came out of your mouth. Not necessarily how you intended 
but arguably amplified them to a much more impactful place that you had absolutely no idea existed for five years. And now here they are in front of you telling you how you changed their life. Tell me that's not changing the world for the better. Tell me that person hasn't affected everyone every day for the last five years in a more positive way because of a conversation that you don't even remember. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. This is the first episode of the Practical Honesty Podcast. I'm excited to get things going and I'm excited to have you along listening to these rambling thoughts as I sit here in the dark with my eyes open now, but this has been fun. Until next time, may curiosity lead our way.